0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 it says now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way the Lord be with you all I Paul write this greeting with my own hand this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine it is the way I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all let's pray Lord, we come before you this morning, and what a privilege to worship your name, to praise it. Thank you for Justice and Laura and the rest of the worship team and them week after week uh, serving you through the ministry of their voices and their instruments. Let your hand of blessing be upon them. Lord, thanks for uh, Jasmine and Simon's wedding last night and the celebration of the work that Uh, you have done, are doing, and we continue to do in their lives. We pray you'd bless their marriage, make it fruitful uh, spiritually and physically, God. Thanks, Lord, that you are ever, ever, ever near to us. In our times of need, and even in our times of plenty, God, you're there. May we always recognize your presence with us. Thanks for blessing us with children in this church. Uh, Please grab their hearts uh, from an early age. Let them know you, truly know you, and serve you with everything they have. Let them see the passion and the love that we have for you and um, not just want to imitate that externally, but know it uh, internally, God. Lord, let us hear from your word now. Thanks for the privilege of being able to hear it, and may we come before you with humble hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're at the last... Three verses of Second Thessalonians. This is what is basically the closing section of the letter, and Paul begins with a benediction. Usually what happens is the closing section. It actually is not just like, oh, I don't know what else to say, so I'll just say something kind of pithy and nice to wrap this thing up. No, there's actually some thought put, it, put into it, and usually it relates to the major concerns and issues that he's already dealt with. In the letter. In fact, you could kind of think of it like the, the Thanksgiving section, uh, which is in most of Paul's letters and is at the beginning of the letters. That kind of like foreshadows the issues that he's going to deal with and address. And so it's almost like the, uh, the closing is like the reverse. It kind of talks and reflects back into a couple of things he mentions. Uh, it might not seem that evident on a first glance, but I'm going to show you how he's doing that for us today. Normally, when you're talking about um, a closing section, Paul usually has some type of benediction, which we see here in verse 16. The benediction uh, actually being also a prayer with the wording, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. There's basically four elements when you're talking about a peace benediction. We see... All four of those here, usually there's an introductory element. I think most of your translations use the word now. So we see the now. That's the transition, and that is actually the first element of a peace benediction. The second is we have a divine source doing something. Who's the divine source here? The Lord, right? Now may the Lord. And then there's some content to it. A lot of times it's like a peace be with you. That's what you see normally. In Paul's letters at the end, peace, grace be with you. We actually see it at the beginning, and for those of you that are um, interested in chiasms, Second uh, Thessalonians is actually a, a kind of a giant chiasm, if you believe it or not. But we can talk about that after the sermon. Um, so there's a divine source of the wish, uh, this being the Lord. Then there's the content. Um, normally, like I said, it's it's peace, be with you, but in this case, and we're going to look at it a little more in depth shortly, it's give. The Lord give you peace. Then there's the recipient of the wish. Who's the recipient? You, right? The Lord give you the peace. But here, and this is what I want to focus on for a little bit, uh, Paul moves away from this normal form that he normally has in his letters in three different ways. Um, And part of the reason he does that is because he wants to remind the Thessalonians of issues that he's already addressed previously in the letter, and actually including First Thessalonians. Um, three devi- deviations. So where does he where does he differ here in this benediction? First, and this is important. Um, most of his peace benedictions identify the divine source as God. That us. Here, Paul refers to the giver of the wish as the Lord. Curios. That might not seem that important. Um, Normally, the the Thessalonians, especially if they were converted from paganism, could not read Hebrew. And in fact, most uh, people back then, even the Jews, could not read Hebrew. So that's a problem if you want to read the Old Testament, right? So they translated it into the Greek. Whenever the term uh, Yahweh appears in the Old Testament in Greek. It uses the term kurios. So Yahweh is appearing in Hebrew. It's, it's Yahweh in the Greek. The way they translated it was into kurios. Um, any reader of the Greek Old Testament, the Jews back then, and then I'm sure uh, that these Thessalonians had access to it. Paul would have made sure of that. There was probably a synagogue maybe that they were even using to get some of those uh, sources this kurios would have stuck out into their mind pretty quickly. Meaning, they would have maybe been expecting God, talking about uh, the Father. But here, as we've noticed before, whenever kurios is used in the New Testament, the vast majority of the time it's talking about Jesus. So he, he switches it from what would normally be, uh, may the God of peace himself give you peace, but he's intentionally choosing the word Lord, referencing back to Jesus. So Paul is here stressing the role that Jesus plays in carrying out this prayer for peace. Not only that, notice how he he stresses this role by saying the Lord of Peace himself, right? He intensifies basically that pronoun. It's called an intensive pronoun. The Lord himself. This attributes a divine role to Jesus. We've seen that in 1 Thessalonians, and now we've seen it a number of times in 2 Thessalonians where a divine attribute is given to Jesus. There, one, the prayer is to Jesus, and then he is the one who's giving the peace. So he himself is the one giving the peace. Now, if you think about it, uh, throughout the letter, there's a strong emphasis on Jesus and what he's doing. Just briefly, we'll just look at it real quick. Look back at chapter 2 in Second Thessalonians. Verse 13, notice who's beloved. It says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by who? The by the Lord. Notice, and then, and then notice right after that, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You actually see the Trinity right there in that verse, right? The Lord Jesus, God the Father, the Spirit being the Holy Spirit. But we can see there clearly the reference to Jesus Even the prayers, turn to chapter 3, verse 5, May the Lord, this is a prayer again, as we have studied previously, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. The Lord, again, here being Jesus. We see it as well in the command, in verse 6 of chapter 3. Now we command your brothers in the name of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. So how are they acting? How are they carrying this thing out? With whose authority are they acting? Jesus. So we see that there in verse 6. And then down in verse 12. Now, such persons we command and encourage in who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, the very end. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So there's this emphasis, same with 1 Thessalonians. You see this Jesus' name used, or the term Lord used, uh, repeatedly. In a more specific way, uh, this change also recalls the major concern of the letter. The confusion over the claim that the day of the Lord has come, right? Back in verse 1 of chapter 2, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus. Okay. So that's the first thing. Second, Paul, at the end of a number of his letters, he normally says, and I already mentioned it, uh, may the God of peace be with you. But here Paul is changing his wording, and he uses the word give. He's using the word give, and he repeats the peace. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. This double reference to peace clearly emphasizes, check this out, the content of the prayer, an emphasis on peace. This makes sense when you think about the, the issues that Paul had addressed to the Thessalonians. What's going on with the Thessalonians that peace is needed? Well, one, <clears throat> here in chapter three, uh, he's dealing with lazy and rebellious members of the church. Well, what does that create potentially? internal tensions, internal tensions that have resulted, why? Because of their behavior and the need to be disciplined. So just as Paul in his first letter anticipated strained relations from the admonishment, remember in 1 Thessalonians at the end in chapter 5 he's admonishing, admonishing the idle and the rebellious, then he commands them in, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians be at peace. Here he expects his commands also potentially cause strife. Why? Because if you're going to deal with sin, people aren't going to be happy about it. They're not going to like it. So he's saying, in an emphatic manner, the Lord of peace give you peace. Jesus wants peace in his church. Amen? That's the unity and community that we talked about last year. And here's the thing, whenever you deal with sin, the hardened, unrepentant sinners will push back. They will grumble, they will complain, and they will cause strife. People don't want their sin to be addressed or dealt with. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday, he said at his church, the pastor started preaching against gay marriage, and people literally got up out of their seats and were walking out leaving the church. Conservative church. Many conservative churches though, I mean the pastor can preach against he can preach against that. I can preach against that. Whatever sin uh, he can preach against whatever sin he wants to and the members have no issues until 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 he preaches against their sin. Could you handle a sermon? against your own sin? Could you handle a sermon against the areas you fall short? Well, if you, if you stay here long enough, we'll find out. <laughs> Paul knows that church discipline has the potential to cause internal strife and he's calling for church discipline to be practiced. He knows it might not go smoothly. So what's his advice? Oh, just take the middle of the road. Don't rock the boat. No. Deal with the sin. When I first got saved, I went to my pastor. I'd grown up in this church. I went to my pastor, and I had like 30 or 40 questions. I just wanted to know where he stood on, on different issues, you know, so evolution, all sorts of different things. And we got to abortion. I was asking him what he believed about abortion, and his response was, well, you know, we got some people in our church and they're, you know, very pro-life and and they're pretty kind of extreme on this side and that's very important to them. But then on the other side, we also have people that are like diehard pro-choice and they're on this side. So what I think is the the proper approach is we're going to kind of take like a middle of ground so that we don't offend either side. That was his approach to dealing with tough biblical issues. That's wrong, by the way. So notice three things in Second Thessalonians that Paul makes clear regarding church discipline. One, he makes it clear that church discipline is indeed required in certain situations. Look at verse 6. We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. That's church discipline. That's part of it. And then he revisits, I mean, he kind of sandwiches. Verse 6 is like the, hey, I'm going to start talking about a particular new section or theme here, a new subject matter. How does he start it out? Talking about church discipline. Then he talks about work, which we've focused on the last few weeks. But then how does he wrap it up? Verse 14, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed But notice, Paul's not talking about all the unbelievers that might possibly hear the letter, because look what he says in verse 15. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So notice three things here. One, he's making it clear church discipline is indeed inquired in certain situations. I think it's so important here that look what he says in verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. What's the context that he's talking about? Dealing with this situation. The whole context here when he gets to verse 13 is these rebellious, idle people that are causing issues in the church. And what is he telling them? Don't grow weary in doing good. Basically, don't get discouraged in dealing with this problem. You need to deal with it, and you might get discouraged because of the issues that it's going to cause in dealing with it, but don't grow weary in doing good. This is the good and right thing to do. You need to do it. Don't get discouraged in doing so. I mean, don't you get discouraged sometimes when believers you know commit serious sin and they're not repentant? When you see believers you used to know who now are no no longer walking with the Lord, like, that can be discouraging. So the Thessalonian church is dealing with this, and Paul's exhorting them to not grow weary in doing good. He is telling them, you are doing the right thing. Keep doing it. Don't be discouraged. Church discipline is a good, righteous, and pure thing to do. Jesus commanded it. Paul commanded it. The Bible commands it. I mean, even if you think about the Old Testament for a moment. Y'all read the Old Testament occasionally? Okay, you should. It's hard to understand the new fully if you don't have the old. All right? It's true. You think about the Old Testament. Think about some of the... um, Some of the... If you broke certain commandments, what happened to you for breaking certain commandments? Uh, a lot of times you, you read the term, um, they will be cut off. They will be cut off. Now, depending on the context, that cutting off can mean, actually mean different things. Sometimes it's a cutting off, like you're going you're gonna to kill them. But sometimes the cutting off meant they had to be outside the camp. And it even goes into the specifics of talking about that. This particular um, thing requires they're outside the camp for X number of days. Think about that, though, for a moment. Is not that a form? of excommunication. Like, they're outside the camp. The rest of the camp is is inside doing their thing. You're outside the camp. You've been cut off. It's a form of church discipline, if you will, because what's happening outside the camp? Well, not the stuff happening inside the camp, right? I mean, you're not with your family. You're not with your fellow Israelites. You're not participating in Family life. You're not participating in the life of Israel. And the clear message here, the clear message is that sin has consequences, right? Sin affects fellowship. That's another clear message. Sin sin affects relationships. So, I mean, we see that over and over in the Old Testament. That would have been nothing new or crazy or outlandish to the Jews of the time. So that's the first thing. Second, it is a good thing to do. What does he say? Do not grow weary in doing good. What's the good? It's the church discipline, really. It's the church discipline and walking it out and carrying it out. Don't go weary and doing good. What? The things I've just talked about. And also, hey, just in case you forgot from the previous couple verses, I'm going to remind you again. If they're not doing what I'm saying here in this letter, you need to deal with the situation. You need to deal with them. That's the second thing. Third, this church discipline must be carried out in a timely manner. You don't let it go on and on and on and on and on. You deal with the situation because look what he says. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, I mean, just think about that, though. So this situation has been going on. The letter gets delivered. The letter is read. It doesn't say as soon as you get this letter, remove them. They get the letter. They get an opportunity to what? To repent. To change. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person. So it's like you're taking note. It's not just like a rash decision. No, you're taking note. There's an opportunity. They're giving, they've are giving. they been confronted with their sin, and now they have opportunity to repent and change. If anyone does not obey what we'll we say in this letter, take note of that person. So, church discipline must be carried out in a timely manner. You can rush to it, or you can go too slow. So you don't let it go on and on. You deal with the situation. So, the... Th- that's those three regarding the second item. The third unique feature of this peace benediction, however, suggests that the emphasis on peace also looks back to other issues in the letter. Look what he says in verse 16 again. May the Lord of peace himself give you peace. Notice what it says. At all times. In every way. All of Paul's other letters don't have that, those tack-ons at the end. And they're not just tack-ons. They're there intentionally. He's trying to communicate at all times and all ways. The prayer isn't just only about the rebellious idlers. Paul expect, expects his prayer for peace to be applied to the Thessalonian church in a very broad manner, both temporally, that's the at all times, and experientially, in all ways. So think about what the Thessalonians were dealing with. One, they had fear regarding the end times, right? Two, remember, they're being persecuted. Paul mentions the persecution in 1 Thessalonians at the beginning and 2 Thessalonians. So they are experiencing persecution for their faith. Three, what's the last? Well, this issue of of the work. So it's, it's a broad manner that he's wanting the peace. The peace with the conflict going on with unbelievers, the peace with their uncertainty regarding the day of the Lord, and then peace within the church regarding church discipline. They need the Lord's peace everywhere. That's the point for each of these situations. And what is peace? Because a lot of times we think of peace... As, like, an in- internal emotional state of tranquility. There is an aspect of that when we talk about peace, but a lot of times when the Bible's talking about peace, it's not talking about subjective internal feelings. So that can be nice sometimes, right? But when you think about, like, let's just talk about peace with God for a moment. You, do you want a subjective internal feeling of peace with God, or do you want an objective? Truth, reality of peace with God. I mean, you might be like, well, I kind of like both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of people out there, brothers and sisters, who think they have, they, they feel subjectively like they're at peace with God and they don't know God. So they've been deceived. They have this subjective internal tranquility, but it's not really there. It's not true. So the objective. We want, when, when Romans is talking about we now have peace with God, it's not like, oh, you feel all great and, and shiny and happy and, you know, no. Like, you were at war with God. You wanted to take him down. Okay? And finally, you, you wave, you're like waving the white banner. I give up. I give up, all right? And God said, here's the terms of peace, accept it or reject it. And and you accepted it. If you're a believer, Right? And, and you have peace with God. You are no longer at war with him. So here, when we're talking about peace, it's this peace. You could, it could be like nations at war. That's the type of peace. It could be in the social sphere, Excuse me. sphere. It consists of the absence of discord. The absence of conflict. So he's praying for peace for the Thessalonians with the unbelievers. Hey, there's unrest and unsettlement and persecution and I'm praying for peace. Not really for the Thessalonians to feel something subjective, but for God to intervene and, and cause some type of peace between the unbelievers and the believers. That's a good thing to pray for. We're privileged to be here and not have too much persecution. It is growing. It's going to get worse in America. Our brothers and sisters in some foreign lands experience much, much worse. And we should pray for peace for them with unbelievers. Favor in the sight of men. So that's part of what his prayer is, that they're being persecuted, that there'd be a peace. No more discord. No more conflict. But he's also praying for peace within the church. Peace within the church. No conflict or discord. Finally, notice what he says as he wraps up. Verse 16, The Lord be with you all. Now this is normally an opening greeting that the Jews used. Think back to some of the times it's used in the Old Testament. It's normally used as like an encouragement to whoever's being addressed, like that the Lord, hey, the Lord is with you. Um, Be encouraged. This is what Boaz says when he greets his workers in the field, in the book of Ruth. When the angel appears to Gideon in the book of Judges, This is how he greets them. The Lord be with you. Think of what the angel says to Mary. The Lord be with you. So it's a greeting, but not just like, oh, just, hey, how's it going? But a greeting meant to encourage one that the Lord actually is with them. This term, when we think of the Old Testament, this term exclusively belonged to Yahweh. Yahweh was the one that was with Abraham. Yahweh was the one that was with Moses and the Jews at Mount Sinai. Yahweh was the one that was with the Jews in the wilderness. Yahweh was the one with the Jews in the promised land. Yahweh was the one with the Jews in the exile, and Yahweh was the one with the Jews when they returned from the exile. It was always Yahweh. And That same God in the Old Testament, that was always with you, Paul's saying, that Yahweh, guess what? He's still with you. His name is Jesus, because Jesus is Yahweh. We see this high Christology throughout 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Sometimes you read, um, and, you, and you don't waste your time reading it, but if, if you read it uh, like I do, I don't think I'm wasting my time because I'm trying to be trained. Uh, <clears throat> and in part so you don't have to read it. But you read some of, of this you know, liberal garbage trash out there, and they'll try to, like, oh, well, this, the, the theology of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, it really didn't develop for hundreds of years in, until after uh, you know the first centuries of the church, you know then they then they develop no, i mean Paul one of his first books first thessalonians i mean it 's all over the place you just you can 't deny it um, the, i mean it 's sad because these guys have you know more initials behind their name than some you know uh, foreign alphabets, yet they can 't even get right something as basic as understanding the Bible and seeing first thessalonians but there it is here 's what I want to say. Some applications for us. One, Paul gave them what they needed when they needed it. They needed instruction on certain certain things. What does Paul do? He instructs them on certain things. They needed correction on certain things. What does Paul do? Corrects them on certain things. They needed rebuke on certain things. What does he do? He rebukes them on certain things. Do you trust the sovereignty of God. Do you believe he's sovereign? Yes. Completely sovereign over the affairs of men? Okay. Yes. <clears throat> Do you trust the pastors of this church? Okay. Yes. Then you need to trust that, God, that, that we're submitting ourselves unto the Lord, seeking him as to what needs to come forth from this pulpit each Sunday. And that it's not going to be what we want, but what he wants. Okay. Yes. I mean, it's no... Uh, coincidence whatsoever that here we are dealing with a passage in 2 Thessalonians 3 dealing with church discipline. It's just not. Alright? That's God's sovereignty. We address it. As we're working through a book, a situation comes up, we address what the Word says. We believe He's sovereign. He's going to bring those subjects up in time. Now, sometimes we might feel strong enough, we'll just hit the pause button on whatever book we're going through. You always got to do that for Mother's Day, by the way. (laughs) but we'll hit the pause button to address uh, a particular issue or something like that that we think is needed, and we're not, we're not going to try to force that into Second Thessalonians or something, right? But the point is, like, Paul knew what, that they needed instruction, correction, and rebuke on certain things, and God, in his providence, gives pastors to each of the local churches with, with the belief and knowledge that they know, they know that what their people need. You know, so, I mean, someone else can, can listen to this sermon and, and, and glean things from it and learn and grow from it, but, but it's really geared towards the members of liberty. That's who it's geared towards. I mean, when I'm writing this uh, and putting this together, it's not in some vacuum. And if I was at whatever, some church uh, in some other state, it would uh, hopefully the exegesis, what, what the text says, would look the same, but the application might look very different and how it's used and how it applies to you and the different illustrations even that I might use. Why? Because there's a particular context. And if if a similar sermon is preached in 20 years, it might look different. If it's preached 50 years ago, it might look different. Why? Because we're we're living in a different culture. It never changes the message. The exegesis, what the text says, won't change. But when you want to talk about, like, uh, the application, how does it apply to you? How does it apply to you? It always means the same thing. 100 years ago, 100 years from now, always means the same thing. But in this context, what do the members of Liberty need to hear on how to walk it out? That will look different in every single church. So Paul gave them what they needed. We're going to do the same. Take the Word of God, we're going to apply it to your life. Each area of your life. God knows what you need to hear when you need to hear it. If you're hearing a sermon and you don't like it, that's probably right where you need to be. Okay, And the truth is, you need it, you need all of it. You might not want it, but you need it. And James says, what does he say? Receive with meekness the implanted word. Receive with meekness. Look at James, just briefly, James chapter 1. Look how he starts in James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What's the context here? It's it's sin. Sin's going on. He's not, he's not, like, building them up here. He's just calling them out. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And then do what? Receive the word. The context here is sin that he is addressing. And it's not just like, oh, I kind of stop fighting with you. I mean, all filthiness and rampant wickedness? I mean, that's some pretty serious sin. So repent and then receive the word. But what's our normal reaction to having our sin confronted? We get offended, we get upset, we deny it, we get mad, we walk away. I mean, King David, in the midst of some of the the grossest sin imaginable, committing adultery, having uh, the lady's wife put to death, right? But when he's confronted on it, what is his response? Nathan confronts him. You know, you are the man. What's his response? I mean, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. Didn't try to excuse it or throw anything up. I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12. God at times, listen, God at times through the preaching of the word points out your sin, and guess what he says? You are the man. That's what he does. He brings a Nathan along. But guess what? Have a response like David's. I have sinned against the Lord. Humble yourself. Realize you need God's grace. Acknowledge it to the Lord. Confess it. Repent and turn away from it. Quit playing around with sin. Some of you have said no to sin for a long time. And it's been knocking at your door. But here's the thing. Sin doesn't just knock at your door. It's like banging at your door. Banging and banging and banging. It's like the, you know, the, the citizens of Sodom when they're trying to get to the, the angels in Lot's house, right? They weren't just like, oh, hello, is anyone there? Now they're like banging down the door. Right? They're trying to break down the door, right? That's how sin is. Trying to get to you. Resist and say no, it's not worth it. Listen, there's no spot of land on this earth where sin is a good thing. It's just true. There's no place on God's green earth where sin is worth it. It is never, ever, 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 ever worth it. And it exacts a heavy toll from the one who participates in it. You realize you you, you pay a price for sin. You pay a price. It's costly. It is not worth it. But anyone who dabbles in sin pays a price. Don't do it. And one of the tricks of Satan, one of the tricks of Satan, is into deceiving believers. Okay, that's us if we trusted in Christ that sin has no consequence or very little consequence. Like, oh, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? What's the big deal? It is a very big deal. It costs your Savior His very life. He died on a cross because of your sins. That's pretty serious. And the consequences are serious. Yes, it really does affect people. It affects you and it affects people around you. And listen, the halls of hell are paved with the sins of those who didn't think it was a big deal. Oh, no, sin's not a big deal. They're just putting one more paver stone in hell. It's a big deal. It is a very big deal. And Satan, what's he going to do? He does three things. He's going to tempt you to sin. He's going to tempt you to sin. And then he's going to deceive you about that sin. He's probably going to deceive you into thinking the sin's not a big deal and then tempt you to do that sin. And then he's going to accuse you to the brethren. I mean, it's just like the whole ball of wax is just awful and awful what Satan does. He's tempting you, he's deceiving you about the sin, and then he accuses you to the brethren and to God himself. What is our call with that? Resist. That's what we're supposed to do. Resist. You're still in James. Look a couple chapters over. Verse 7, James 4. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Okay, that, If you're being tempted, if you've already given in, if you've been deceived, you've been sinning, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and guess what he does? He will flee from you. He will flee from you. Okay? That's the promise. He will flee from you. You resist him, he's going to flee. Listen, if you have a faith that justifies, then you have a faith that sanctifies. You can't have one without the other. Okay? If you have a faith that justifies, you have a faith that sanctifies. What does that mean? There will be change. There will be growth. It will be noticeable. People will see it. They go together, justification and sanctification. God doesn't stop the work once you get saved. You know, it's like, oh, I prayed that prayer 25 years ago. You know how many people are in hell that prayed some prayer? A lot, okay? That prayer doesn't save you. There's not some magical formula in some words that you pray. God's concerned about your heart. And I've, I've heard some people pray, some of the just... those prayers that you know there's like oh you have gotta pray this and this and this and I was just like the most messed up prayer apologizing to God and repenting for their sin and wanting to trust in Christ and I was just like man that thing was a train wreck of a prayer But, but guess what they meant it it was real and you saw the change okay it was real and you see other people and they've got the form to the prayer and then you don't ever see the change they had the right words man that sounded real beautiful and good or wasn't any change. But they prayed the prayer. That prayer didn't do them any good. Okay? God's the one who saves. And guess what? He even saves without praying that prayer, believe it or not. You're like, really? <laughs> I never prayed a prayer, but sometime back in 1995, February, right around about February 9th, somewhere in that range, I got saved. Yes. But I never prayed some prayer. I just know that, like, the day before and the day after, I was a completely different person. I trusted in Christ, repented of my sins. So, if you have a faith that justifies, then you have a faith that sanctifies. I was at, I was at the, uh, I was picking up some plot, some supplies the other day at this store, and I had was talking with this one gentleman that worked there that was helping me out, and. Um, I'm like, man, I need, to, I need to share with this guy. I need to share with him. I'm like going over my mind as we're talking, like, okay, what, what's like a good little intro or something like that, you know? How can I like shift this conversation? And all of a sudden he's like, okay, man, have a good day. I was like, oh, I'm not ready for that. But I thought I had a couple more, like another 15 or 20 seconds as he was wrapping things up. And so he starts walking away and I'm like, oh, I have one more question. I'm like, I don't even know what I'm going to say yet, <laughs> but it's going to be something about the gospel. <clears throat> so I, I said something about, you know, has anyone ever ever told you you can you can be made right with God? It was something along those lines, um, and be forgiven of your sins. And um, he's like, no. I was like, okay. <laughs> so I mean, I gave him I gave him a a, a short gospel presentation, and he's like, man, it is so interesting that you just shared this with me, because he's like, I felt like like. I needed something, like something's been going on in my life and like something's been weighing on my heart and I need to do something. And all it took, you know, just five seconds of boldness is really what it, you know, just five seconds. Once you ask that first question and get in there, I mean, it kind of goes a little bit smoother after that. Just five seconds though, right? So, I mean, I gave him my phone number, encouraged him to text me. I, I did not get his name, but so be praying for the nameless guy. Um, but God's doing a work, some work. Like he knew that, like he recognized that that was like a divine appointment. So I got to go back to that store, um, at some point and, um, just pray that he's working there that day and, and can make a connection that I can encourage him again. But I mean, someone like that, that's, I mean, we're sharing the truth, right? And sometimes like and me, of all people, would be probably least of all to say it in in many regards, because I'm like, okay, well, we got to have the proper, you know, the proper word and the proper a good intro and, and different. No, sometimes we get we get so concerned about trying to have that, like I was in that moment, that we just miss the moment or we just don't even say anything. I'd I'd much rather have people stumbling over their words and just sharing their testimony about how God did something to them than not saying anything at all and being so like. You're you're it's like the the paralysis of analysis, you know. Like you're trying to analyze so much, what's that one great question I can ask right in this moment? If you do that, you won't even share like four fifths of the time. Because you'll miss those moments. You just gotta open your mouth and yeah, I'm not saying don't study before because y'all know I'm all about that. But you get in those moments, you get a, bit a little bit nervous. Just say something. The Lord will take care of it. The Lord was obviously working. Obviously working in that guy's life. So just sometimes we get so concerned about form that we just don't follow through with the truth of what we need to be sharing. God wants us, yes, sharing and being evangelists. Does he want us to get better at it? Sure. But man, let's just start. And if that means tripping and stumbling over our words a little bit, making a fool of ourselves, better a fool for Christ than a king for the devil, okay? Well, then we can stumble over our words. God's done way too much great stuff for us, for us not to be sharing that with other people. It just takes that five seconds, get your foot in that door, to share the hope and truth. Usually it gets a lot better after that five seconds. I want to encourage you, looking back in 2 Thessalonians, the peace that God gives us through his son Jesus. Yes, there is at times a subjective aspect to it, We've looked at that. Even the corporate worship book that we went through in our life book discusses that. But it's the objective reality that you, each one of you, can be made right with God. Unbelievers, if you have not trusted in him, then you are the enemy of God. You're an enemy. That's what the Bible says. You are an enemy. But guess what? God offers the terms of peace through his son Jesus and you trust, and it can be some fumbled prayer, something said in your heart, but if you're trusting and repenting, guess what? The angels in heaven are rejoicing. They rejoice over, over just one, one sinner. Repenting. They're rejoicing. So I encourage you today, if you haven't trusted, trust in Christ. Don't be an enemy any longer. Be at peace with him. It is the peace that he gives us the peace that he grants to us through his son, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus, for raising him from the dead. Through him, we have life. Through him, we're reconciled to you. We're justified in your sight. We're sanctified in your sight. And Lord, I pray for each person here, Each believer, Lord, that they'd have peace in the relationship they have. They've had peace where there might be discord or strife. I pray for this church that there'd be peace. We'd continue to walk in peace. The absence of discord, the absence of strife. Let us put that to death, God. Anything from the enemy, anything not from you. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you that you would regenerate their soul. Give them the gift of faith to trust in you, to know you. Remove the guilt and the shame and replace it with the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let them see you clearly for who you are today for the first time. A good and gracious God who wants to adopt them into your family. Thank you for doing that for us. We love you. Amen.